Huh, I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think you need to come over, stand in my to shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It is the season for nostalgia. So this week, we're thinking a little more deeply about that. What makes you nostalgic for your hometown? Is there a certain holiday or time of year when you will go out of your way to be home? Holiday traditions and community celebrations make us feel connected to the place we live. And so a few years ago on Top of Mind, we collected a whole bunch of really fun stories about this kind of thing from all around the country. And to tie it all together, we called up Melody Warnick, who's written a couple of books about feeling connected to the places we live. This is Where You Belong was her first one, and her latest is called If You Could Live Anywhere. I'm so happy to be here, Julie. We, as I mentioned, have collected anecdotes from lots of communities and people that we're going to share this hour. But I would love to hear about something that makes you nostalgic for, I don't know, your hometown or maybe just one of the many places you've lived. So I grew up in Southern California and I my family's tradition was we went to Disneyland every Christmas Eve. So you can imagine, you know, you're a little kid. You're at Disneyland. Tomorrow is Christmas. It basically does not get any better than that. One of the things that Disneyland does really well is parades. There's always a moment when everyone kind of sits on the curb on Main Street and you watch the Christmas parade go by. And I, as an adult, have become a complete obsessive for parades. <laughs> I love them. I will go see any parade, the the homecoming parade or the Christmas parade. Um, and I only recently made this connection that this was something I did as a kid because it didn't actually happen in my town so much, but it happened every year and it happened around Christmas. When I moved to Ames, Iowa a few years ago, uh, I realized that Ames excels at their 4th of July parade. It's this two-hour extravaganza. Everyone in town shows up. They drag, you know, their lawn chairs out uh, to the curbs downtown, and you just sit there and you watch tractors go by and political candidates and scouting groups and cyclists. I marched in it a few times with the library because I was on the library board. In the town where I live now, we have a fantastic Christmas parade and the weather's always a little iffy and you're standing out there in your mittens and your hat and you're freezing to death but everyone comes to watch these cars going by pulling flatbed trailers with carolers and Christmas decorations so nothing makes me more joyful than a good parade and I think it's something that a lot of towns do really well why is that do you think that um, I personally I hate parades. <laughs> I, I think it's because I don't like crowds. You are not alone. <laughs> but uh, but I know a lot of people love it, and there is something. I mean, what do you think it is? I know you've actually done a lot of research on the science behind this whole feeling attached to your community. What is it about a parade that fosters a certain sense of, I love this place that I live? For me, a parade is the ultimate expression of community togetherness you know you're standing there you're watching basically every community group in your town not to mention all the jeep owners go by and it's just everyone in town saying we love this place and and we are celebrating ourselves what we do well um uh, so i wrote this is where you belong to discover what it is that makes people love where they live and and one of the things that came up in my research is this concept of place attach attachment, which is this feeling of at-homeness where you live, this deep connection that a lot of people have for their town. Um, so that comes from a lot of different places. You know, how much time you've spent there can really matter. So people can have a really strong connection to their hometown, but it also comes based on actions and behaviors. When I was writing This Is Where You Belong, I did what I called love where you live experiments. They were uh, things based on research and anecdotal evidence that were designed to make me feel better about my community. So some was 
for example, I walked and biked more. I made an effort to meet my neighbors. I shopped at the farmer's market. I volunteered. So place attachment occurs when we very consciously engage with our place and we get involved and we come, become invested in our town's success. And I think parades are a way to see yourself as part of that. You show up, you're in a group of people who are also from your town and you're watching people from your town go by. And it's just this happy time of being part of a community. I want to listen to an example of uh, of exactly what you're talking about. And uh, what's interesting about this this example we're going to hear to me is how 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 this woman's family, this listener's family, um, like sort of wove their own traditions into what makes their town really special at a certain time of year. And this is a Christmas <laughs> a Christmas story. Let's have a listen. I'm Natasha Salaji. I grew up about 20 minutes outside Seattle. I say Washington is like living in a beautiful palace and the lights are kind of always dim, but every so often the lights get turned on and you're like, I live in a palace. <laughs> and so um, when you get some beautiful winter days in in Washington, it like nothing beats that. So Christmas has definitely been something that I've always loved. I remember that they would used to put, or they, I think they still do, um, lights on top of the space needle to look like a Christmas tree. Um, and as you're walking through the streets, there's just lights on every building. Um, and like the big displays as you're window shopping, everything was just so bright. We would go to the, sp- the old spaghetti factory, which was right on the, uh, the pier there, except for now it's closed, which I'm really sad about. Um, but we'd go eat dinner there, and then we would go to Teddy Bear Sweets, um, which was in one of the hotels downtown. They would decorate one whole suite of um, the hotel just themed in teddy bears and every year they have a different theme um and so we'd go we get a candy cane and we walk around and take pictures uh and then as we walked further on they're um, at the sheraton hotel there they do a a gingerbread house like bake-off kind of uh every year they do it for um, diabetes research and you can um, put money to fund them and they all have a different theme every year too and they are the most beautiful, extravagant gingerbread houses you've ever seen. They're huge, um, like way bigger than a couple people combined. They have moving parts. They have characters. And that's definitely one of my favorite memories for sure. Seattle especially gets kind of a bad rep for having people with like the, the cold shoulder. And um, I think that it's interesting because at Christmas time, people are just so welcoming to each other and friendly. Um, there's just kind of a special... Um, feeling in the air and so I think people's hearts are a little bit more open at Christmas time which I appreciate. Natasha Salaji there telling us about her uh, favorite Christmas time in her hometown of Seattle. What did you think about that Melody? Oh my gosh my favorite line that she said is I live in a palace. (laughs) Um, It's that sense of oh my gosh um, you know this place is amazing. This sort of wonder that comes from looking around you every once in a while, um, that is place attachment. And I think it happens a lot easier at the holidays because literally your place becomes more beautiful. There's lights and there's things going on. I also think um, what really helps us feel that sense of love and togetherness at the holidays is we're all kind of gathering in similar places. You know, there's things to see, there's a lot of stuff to do. And so Seattleites come out um, and that happens in towns all over the country. Um, There was this quote from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, you know, the famous researcher of flow who said, simply being with other people generally improves a person's mood significantly, regardless of what else is happening. This seems to be as true of teenagers as of older people. If you know any teenagers, you know that that's saying a lot. Um, But people value that sense of togetherness and community. And the holidays in particular, the Christmas holidays, are designed to foster that, you know, and we seek it out in not just the Christmas parades, but the sing-alongs and the community shopping nights and the concerts and things like that. So, you know, as we get together, that makes us appreciate uh, our town and, and feel like, 
hey, this is this is our place and it's beautiful. Let's listen to another. Uh, this is a listener, actually a colleague of mine, Ralph Tobias, who works in marketing for BYU TV. And he told us about a fun Christmas tradition in his hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania. We've got a very diverse population there, a lot of different uh, cultures, Germans and, and Polish and Hispanic and African-American. But we don't have a very large Asian population, which makes my childhood memory uh, very unique, very different. Because up on the top of Mount Penn, which overlooks Redding, there's a Japanese-style pagoda, which was built in the early 19th or 18, uh, 20th century, about 1913 or so. And one of the traditions that we have in our city is at 9 o'clock, precisely 9 o'clock on Christmas Eve, the lights outside of the pagoda it's rimmed by these red lights around all of the all of the edges of the pagoda. They start flashing. And when these lights start flashing, that's a sing- signal to the children in, in town and everybody within sight of the pagoda that Santa has left the North Pole. And he's on his way. And you better go to bed so he can come to your home and give you your presents. Parents would use that as a motivator to get the kids to bed. You know, point to the pagoda and say, hey, it's flashing. You better... You better go to bed. You better go to sleep. Um, it, uh, it goes on today yet. In fact, we used it with our children. Um, we would uh, make it a point to drive around uh, the city uh, as it would get later and get darker on Christmas Eve so that we could see it. And it would start flashing. We would say, well, it's 9 o'clock. Kids, we got to get home, get you to bed so Santa can come. That was Ralph Tobias. I think for me that that um, highlights the – it's another theme we're going to hear throughout this hour, the, the way that these community traditions um, span generations. So many of them have been going on forever. Like, Ralph Tobias, he, he told us this is one of his earliest childhood memories, is seeing the flashing lights on the pagoda and being like, Santa's coming. Um, right? That sense of – continuity between generations, you know, that if you live in this hometown, you will experience the same things that your grandparents experienced and your children will experience them. I think that's a lot of what draws us to particular places and and what makes people stay in their hometowns, which about a third of Americans do. A third of Americans still live in the hometown where they grew up. And I think we value that sense of of heritage and of a past tradition because, you know, that's fading in in modern life as things speed up and change. It's nice to know that there's something that's dependable like that. I also love what Ralph said about, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of people from an Asian background, but we had this pagoda that was kind of an homage to to the people who were from there. I think Community celebrations and holidays and festivals are great for this, for uh, recognizing people of different parts of our community, maybe people who are marginalized in our community, and honoring them and their heritage. Um, a, a lot of towns have, you know, a, a Latino heritage festival or the Greek Orthodox festival. My my daughter's school does an event called Taste of Countries where people from the school who have different uh, heritage backgrounds brings bring food that represents their country. And it's something that makes everyone excited about learning about other places. I can imagine that in Ralphstown, This pagoda is just one little way for people to celebrate another place and another people who might be a little different from you. You know, another thing I was thinking about as he was talking about how everybody in town does this. You can see the pagoda on the hill. um, It's a moment where, and I was thinking about the parades you mentioned earlier, where especially in a lot of these little towns, like if the parade is happening, everybody's going to be there or they're going to be hiding from it. Like nothing else is going on in that (laughs) town. You know, (laughs) there is, there is a parade and that's it. Like it shuts the place down like a really, um, we don't have that. And, And so he's, Ralph is talking about this pagoda, like every kid in every house in that entire town is noticing seen those flashing lights and there's this conversation going on with the parents saying time to go to bed Santa's coming um, 
you know, today we have you can you can track Santa on Noah, but you could do it anytime you want on your little app. You know, it's not we don't have as many or these kinds of um, community traditions are, are just a rare thing where you know that everybody else you know in town is at that very same moment doing the very same thing, watching the parade or looking at the pagoda flashing lights. And that just right. seems really, really special. <laughs> literally togetherness right, you know right. we literally are united doing the same thing because we live in this town together um you know and that is part of what i love about parades is that you're at the parade or you are you know somewhere stuck in traffic because of the parade <laughs> but you know you know the parade's happening and everyone comes out you see everyone you know so you know in this case you may not be seeing the families telling their kids oh the pagoda pagoda lit up and we need to go to bed but you know that it's happening and that kind of creates this feeling of cohesion you know that we're all united in our town. Yeah, you have this thing to share together. Okay, so here, we're not going to talk, Melody, about Christmas this whole hour, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, it's weird because, partly because this is the time of year, but also a lot of these traditions really do revolve around Christmas that are so nostalgic for a lot of people, but we heard about what I think is probably the ultimate in everybody in town has to stop and pay attention to this thing <laughs> that goes on. And it's a Christmas thing. Um, one of our uh, colleagues also here at uh, BYU Broadcasting, he works in TV production. His name is Jeff Rollman. He told us about a tradition that happens at Christmas time in his hometown of York, Pennsylvania. There's a guy named Don Ryan who every Christmas morning at 12.15 a.m., so very early in the morning. He plays Christmas carols on an old factory whistle. It's really, really loud. Uh, You can hear it for miles. This concert has been going on every Christmas morning for 63 years in York, Pennsylvania. So I spoke with Don Ryan, who calls himself the Whistle Master. Let's have a listen. So uh, what is making the noise, the the musical notes exactly there, Don Ryan? Okay, uh, this air, in this case, goes into the whistle. Now, this is a variable pitch whistle. Most whistles were single pitch. Single pitch whistles uh, were all different sizes. uh, And when I was a youngster, the senior citizens used to be able to determine what company was blowing their whistle by the pitch it gave out. Now, the variable pitch whistle came along in 1872. This is a piston inside this whistle. And um, they used that for different sounds, for different codes, for uh, calling people to the company. So let me just see if I've got this right. So there is, I mean, it's like a, if you think of like a little whistle that you would blow by hand, there's a giant one at this factory and it has uh, air forced through it. And then you are able to control where the, the piston stops within the whistle column, which creates different pitches as opposed to just having it fixed in one spot. That is correct. You got it down Perfect. <laughs> and and how are you controlling the piston to make these different notes so that we can sing along to Rudolph? Well, for an example, the piston, when it's down at the low part, it's high pitch. When it's at the far end of the, the uh, cylinder, it's a low pitch. And I move a rod back and forth. It's on a, a rod mechanism that I can move back and forth. It's a two-octave range. And I have to write the music off for it to fall in that two-octave range. You can hear this in a five-mile radius, ten miles away, depending on the wind direction, okay? But a lot of people like to come down and participate in the whistle tailgating around the whistle. They share cookies. It's a family affair. They blow the horns for applause when I'm finished with a song. Let's Another listen. thing I don't do is I do not announce my songs because... A lot of families play Name That Tune. (laughs) Let's listen to uh, this would be the final song of the night a couple of years ago.
is uh, 12.30 in the morning on Christmas morning. People are out there just really laying on those horns. That's um, That gives you a special thrill, does it? Yes, it does. And that's one of the unique things. This is so different. Is there some symbolism, do you think, in the fact that every Christmas you are playing this relic, this whistle, of of the manufacturing heyday of York, Pennsylvania? Yes, I tell you, there was tremendous amount of manufacturing in York, Pennsylvania, but uh, it has deteriorated over the years. You have to understand, a whistle back then in the late 1800s, early 1900s was used for the start of the workday, lunch, at the end of the workday. If they had a fire at the company, they could summon the people into work or special needs. They could summon the people in with the different codes, okay, because they didn't have electronic buzzers back then. And this was a form of communicating. So this oh, Christmas yeah. this Christmas performance that is so distinctive to York then is probably for a lot of folks in the community, it's it's a nostalgic thing, too. It uh, takes them back to their childhood, to a time when you would hear the whistles, uh, to a time when being, uh, you know, a citizen of York, Pennsylvania, meant something a little bit different. That's correct. Oh, yes. Don Ryan is the factory whistle master of York, Pennsylvania. I got to say, Melanie, he was he was really just a kick. I uh, and this there are so many things about this particular community celebration and tradition that just uh, just seems so special. Not to mention, I mean, just for starters, the fact that this is. You know, this is tied to a heritage that York had of being this manufacturing hub. They were they like they were really um, involved in supplying the military during the World War World War Two, I think it was, and making weapons. and uh, And today, it's a different place, but they've still got the factory whistle, which we didn't get to hear him say, but. Uh, the factory itself is no longer operating. Like the only thing that's working in in this whole factory is that whistle, which they play once a year on Christmas Eve. Yeah, the, the amazing thing about this tradition is it's really hitting all the emotional high points for place attachment. It's like you said, this tradition that is built around this town's very particular heritage. Um, so every time they hear the whistle, and I imagine that there are kids in the town and probably young adults who have only ever heard the whistle in the context of Christmas Eve um, or you know Christmas Day at 12, 15 in the morning. Yeah. But it represents something. It represents this history of the town's heyday. Um, but it's also totally unique to York. <laughs> I imagine that, I mean, I would love to hear if there are other towns in America who are doing something he, like this. He talked about that actually with me. We actually talked for a really long time. There was, he had so much he wanted to say about this tradition. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he said that, you know, there were for a time, this actually wasn't all that weird, you know, back in like the the manufacturing era in the you know the 40s and the wow. 50s that actually there were a fair number of towns that have these variable variable pitch whistles that they would play for concerts probably not like christmas eve like this concert but uh it was just one of many and then they've dwindled over time because these whistles don't get used anymore and they're actually kind of expensive to maintain and the whole community in york has been so attached to this that they have like they've held fundraisers and there's all of this community effort to keep this alive. It's the one place it's happening that he knows of, Don Ryan, uh, in the whole country. And the thing that's so great about that is that the community really supports it. You can kind of see how listening to it, that as an outsider to the community, you're a little like, wow, that's really weird. It's <laughs> you know, very it's, weird. <laughs> it's, it's a very different sound. Um, but instead of saying, oh my gosh, this is interrupting my sleep on Christmas night, the, the town comes out and they've created their own holiday traditions and rituals based on this community event, you know, coming out and they're honking their horns and having picnics in the middle of the night. How special is that? For kids growing up in that town, I imagine that this is, you know, a primetime memory of their childhood and something that 
would draw you back. You know, like you talked about that sense of nostalgia that makes people want to be in their hometown at Christmas so they can experience those things that they grew up with and, and that were so seminal when they were children. And I can imagine this being really top of the list, that you'd want to experience that at Christmas. That means Christmas to you. And you'd want your kids to experience it too. So you go home. This uh, There's one other funny side note to this that I do want to mention, and that is that uh, over the last couple of years, they've started doing a live Facebook video, like a feed, a live stream of the whistle. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, we can all experience it all this Christmas. In. And, you know, I mean, he talks about like people all over the world. He heard from somebody in China who was listening one year a couple of years ago. But I imagine if you are from York, Pennsylvania, and you can't be home for Christmas, to be able to get on Facebook at 12:15 a.m. Eastern and and hear the whistle is that's special. Right. And you know, it's interesting because as towns create these rituals and these celebrations, the more unique it can be to your place, the better. That creates a strong sense of place attachment when you feel like this only happens in my hometown. So you know, parades happen everywhere. I went to a parade for Christmas this year in my sister-in-law's town, and it was great. And it was very similar to, to my parade in Blacksburg, Virginia. But something like this that is so unique and based so much on, you know, my town's own history, um, that is a huge asset to your community. And it kind of tells the world who you are as a town and what matters to you. This is Top of Mind, and we're talking about community traditions that connect people to the places they live this hour. And we have Melody Warnick with us. She's author of This is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. She's with us from the Media Relations Studio on the campus of Virginia Tech. Really grateful that they made that available to us so we could talk to Melody today. We have to take a very quick break. But coming up, we're going to hear about a small town that basically doubles in size every summer with huge huge bluegrass festivals and guess what the people in that town actually like it <laughs> we'll hear that coming up on top of mind after a break moving on now from the christmas holiday season i want to share an example of a community tradition that has some personal resonance for me it's an example from my hometown provo utah right here where i'm sitting which makes a really really big deal of the fourth of july every year it's called the freedom festival america's freedom festival is the actual name it's been going on for 31 years there's a gala and a speech contest and this whole school curriculum that goes along with it and that goes on all year and then the weekend of the event, the 4th of July, there's a parade and there are hot air balloon launches and there's a gigantic concert with fireworks that fills the BYU football stadium. But what is most interesting to me about America's Freedom Festival is how how it embodies a very specific take on patriotism which has been tailored over the years to the local community. It's an example of a community defining what it stands for in a really uh, specific way. So a couple of years ago, I actually spoke with Freedom Festival director Paul Warner about that, and I wanted to just play an excerpt. Our mission is to maintain the traditional values of God, family, freedom, and country. I think just the spirit of Utah being what it is in terms of appreciation for the freedoms because of all the different cultural elements here in, in Provo and Utah County. What do you County. mean by that, all the different cultural elements? Well, I think, uh, speaking candidly, that the LDS Church, of course, has always been one that's been grateful for the country and for the, the freedoms that we enjoy, and so they tend to be the ones that support it to a higher degree in some ways because of that here in Utah County. So maybe... Maybe the, the, the very strong emphasis on God and family aside country is, is something that you might not find in other states to the same extent. To that same extent, yeah. I think it radiates here because of that, like you say, this commitment to faith and being able to have families and make them strong in the basis of our community. And so that really adds to what we do. Do you ever struggle or feel the... Uh, how do you walk the line, I guess, between patriotic 
and partisan. This is a very divided nation we live in. Things, right. Everything related to America becomes political and partisan on some level. How do you walk that line in the, you know, in the speeches that you choose to be given, in the, the guests that you choose to honor? Well, and it, it does create some challenges, but we try not to be Republican or Democrat. We, we try to be, here's what we believe is the basis for where this country came from. And so we try to be wise in terms of selection of those people. You're always going to have that that think that we're too conservative, for example, and, and yet we think that's where the country started and we're trying to stay in that, in that ballpark. Uh, Glenn Beck was here with us three years, Sean Hannity was with us twice, and we don't want to build around personalities, but again, they have some message that we think radiates with the people of the county and with what we think are the traditional values. That was a conversation I had with Paul Warner back in 2015. He was director of America's Freedom Festival in Provo. At the time, he has since retired, but the Freedom Festival continues. And an interesting thing that got me thinking about this in the context of communities defining themselves and defining what they value is that in more recent years, the Freedom Festival has started to get some pushback as the community, Provo, has grown and diversified. Uh, Back in 2017, organizers of the Freedom Festival took quite a bit of criticism for refusing to allow a couple of LGBT advocacy groups to march in the Fourth of July parade that the Freedom Festival puts on. The festival organizers reversed that stance, and LGBT groups have been allowed to participate in the last several years. But Melody, I'm interested in your thoughts on how communities sometimes choose a very specific thing that they stand for, like Provo and its particular brand of patriotism and family values. Yeah, these uh, festivals and community celebrations that towns decide to invest in and kind of make their flagship event, the thing that draws all eyes to your town, um, are the way that communities really distinguish themselves and say, this is what we care about. So, you know, towns have to think long and hard about what that is. Are we the Halloween town with the huge pumpkin festival? Are we rodeo days? Are we Mexican heritage festival? And, um, you know, having lived in Provo and I've been to the Freedom Festival, that uh, focus on freedom and 4th of July makes sense for me. But the challenge is, um, as you pointed out in the interview, you have to make sure that things aren't partisan. Um, these events are should be designed to be welcoming to everyone. Um, one piece of research that I refer to a lot when I talk about place attachment is a study called Soul of the Community, Uh, where 26,000 people were surveyed across the country and asked, what makes you love where you live? What makes you feel satisfied in your community? And the three top answers that turned out to be the most important for people in communities all over the country uh, and of all sizes were social offerings, aesthetics, and openness. So people feeling like there's stuff to do, my town is beautiful, and it's a welcoming place. So that last one, openness, kind of uh, requires a little bit of flexibility. We want these celebrations to be traditional. It's great when these are heritage things that get passed down from generation to generation, but they also can't be things that exclude people or that marginalize people in your community. You want these events to welcome all kinds, but it is these are tough issues to grapple with, um, and they're they're hard for communities who are dealing with change, like most communities are these days. Yeah, speaking with Melody Warnick, who is author of "This Is Where You Belong: The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live," let's listen to another example. One of our student producers, Jared Burton, tipped us off to a couple of major music festivals that happen in the tiny town of Lyons, Colorado, every summer. The town has really embraced these festivals, which I think is notable instead of resenting the fact that all these outsiders come and over overwhelm your city a couple of times a year. Uh, so I wanted to know a little more about that. And I spoke with Zach Tucker, who was born and raised in Lyons. He now directs festival operations for Planet Bluegrass, which puts on the Folks Festival and Rocky Grass every summer in Lyons, Colorado. There's, uh, you know, a couple things that 
puts lions on the map. It's kind of known as the the double gateway to the Rockies because you got to go through it to get to Rocky Mountain National Park. Other than that, it's it's these festivals. I feel like uh, they're kind of a huge part of the town's identity, and I know they really uh, were really major for recovery from the flood. Uh, we got hit by the floods of 2013, and it really wiped out a lot of the town, everything along the river corridor. The entire Planet Bluegrass Festival venue was destroyed um, in September. And so kind of everyone was kind of rallying around everyone else in the town, and we were working really hard to try to rebuild Planet Bluegrass because our goal was to not have a, a break in the festivals. We kind of felt like if we can still make these festivals happen this summer, it'll kind of you know show that the the town is coming back strong. And Allison Krauss and Union Station uh, played right after the flood, and that was awesome. It was kind of like they headlined the the headline that first festival after the flood rebuild, um, and it was just a really meaningful night. And so that was really cool. We had Lyle Lovett and his uh, little band, which was like 12 people. How big is Lions, Colorado? Uh, it's about 2,000 people, um, but it feels it feels small and homey. It's kind of right. Right as you enter the uh, the foothills, so everything's kind of along the river uh, and really kind of close in. So it it feels like a small 2,000 people. Um, so there's definitely that feeling that everyone knows each other. Uh, and it was for the longest time I could feel like I could walk down the street and say hi and wave at every single person. So it was pretty pretty awesome. So what's that like then when uh, for a couple of weekends over the summer, 4,000 concert goers come <laughs> to these festivals, which is like, you know, like they're way outnumbering the, no- the locals in Lions. I mean, growing up, did you did you like that? You know, I actually really liked it. Um, there's kind of this this vibe with the the two festivals that are in town are a bluegrass festival and then a folk music festival and there's kind of it's a it's a family friendly kind of vibe with those so it's not like a bunch of crazy people showing up it's it's it just feels like another 4000 people that sort of share the same uh feelings and ideas as a lot of the people in Lions do um so it was just kind of like adding another 4000 people to the family when you come onto the grounds, it's not this big open field. It's beautiful green grass with green trees everywhere. You can actually sit in the shade. It's right along the river. We have um, the river flows right past the stage, so you can sit in a tube in the river hmm. and watch the music. And then there's an on-site campground where people will go and jam with their instruments until three, four in the morning, or even all night. So after the music, you can walk through the campground and listen to all the people that are attending who are also excellent musicians. So that seems important then that these festivals are kind of in line with the ethos. I mean, you're, you're, you're not too far from Boulder, Colorado, and these are folk and bluegrass festivals and you're in the mountains and it's an outdoor festival. So that's part of why Lions has embraced these, uh, these festival goers and, and, and the events themselves every summer. I would certainly agree with that. I think there's a lot of uh, music in Lions as well that has grown because of the festivals and then also independently. There's a ton of bluegrass musicians and stuff like that. And so the community already is really into that. And so I think that really helps make the town accepting of these festivals. It's honestly been the thing that's really kept me there. Um, It's kind of the first thing that comes to mind when anybody talks about what Lions was to me and what it still is to me. That was Zach Tucker talking about some uh, music festivals that take place in Lyons, Colorado, every summer. And Melody, that last line seems really important to me, that here's a young man who had a lot of reasons to leave his small Colorado hometown <laughs> to go find a life elsewhere, like so many of us do. We leave our hometowns, and yet this community tradition has kept him there. He's, he's still in his hometown. I can totally understand that, because just listening to his description, I'm like, I want to go tubing in the river and listen to the bluegrass music. That sounds amazing. Um, One of the things about belonging or that sense of place attachment is that it comes from uh, giving your place meaning. And meaning comes from rituals and emotions and positive experiences, good memories. So that's what turns, you know, any place into your place, the place that matters to you. In the book, I call it putting pins in the map. Every time you have a good experience, a happy experience in your town, you're you're sort of pinning yourself into place because it's it's something that gives your place meaning to you and makes you want to stay there. So For this community, um, having this time every year where 
these happy things are happening and it's a positive experience for everyone uh, makes people want to stay there. And it also has the side benefit of attracting outsiders. A lot of towns are a little leery about tourism, but it's a part of telling the world who you are and inviting them to come experience what you have. In the book, there's a quiz that helps people determine how place attached you are. And one of the statements on the quiz is, I like to tell people about where I live. So when you're really attached to your town and you love living there, you want other people to experience it too. You kind of brag on your town and you, you want visitors to come and you want people to come you know, move there potentially. So this clearly gives um, gives the people of Lyons something to talk about, something to share with other people. And it has this um, you know, benefit that when Lyons suffered a flood, outsiders came to help them recover because they had their own place attachment, which you can have as a tourist. You know, A lot of us have vacation spots that are meaningful to us and that we go back to year after year. So we're attached to them maybe in a different way than our hometown, but they're, they're places that we value and that we want to help. And that's never a bad thing for a town to have lots of people from you know, near and far who want to see it thrive. That's Melody Warnick, author of This Is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. Her latest book, just out in 2022, is called If You Could Live Anywhere. Have you ever heard of Chester Greenwood? Yeah, I hadn't either. But there's a town in Maine that goes all out in his honor every year. And when you find out why, you just might want to pay a visit. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Today on the podcast, we're hearing about community traditions that make us feel connected to the places we live. And we first broadcast this conversation on our daily radio show back in 2017. Melody Warnick joined us. She's author of This Is Where You Belong, which is all about feeling connected to your community. Here's another example of people coming from all over. In fact, this celebration got national news attention. That's how I heard about it. And I thought, what is that? I got to look that up. So I got in touch a couple of years back with Penny Messervier, who at the time was director of the Franklin County Chamber of Commerce in Farmington, Maine. Chester Greenwood Day is our big celebration. That is that's our fun day when we, you know, just really um, enjoy the history of our town. Um, Chester Greenwood is the inventor of the earmuffs. Um, If you live in Maine, you know cold weather, um, and you appreciate inventions that help to keep you warm. Um, And Chester got tired of having cold ears, um, and the story goes that after ice skating one day, he um, decided to find a solution um, and invented the earmuffs. So this was in the late 1800s, right? He went on to yes. start manufacturing <laughs> earmuffs. Um, he manufactured a lot um, in the hundreds of thousands of earmuffs. Um, so, yeah, his factory, the building of his factory is still here today. Is Chester Greenwood basically the favorite son of Farmington, Maine? <laughs> well, you know, it's unique to Farmington. There's not a lot of other towns that can say they have the uh, inventor of the earmuffs here. And um, so on Chester Greenwood Day, um, it's a bunch of food and fun activities. Um, we have a parade, and every float in the parade has gigantic earmuffs on them. Um, we do a gingerbread house contest, polar bear dip. We even do... Um, a flag raising of a special Chester Greenwood flag. Um, We have visits from Santa and tree lighting and all of that. Um, And our historical open houses um, are open um, for viewing, um, and there are displays including um, some Chester Greenwood memorabilia. The locals love it. We put earmuffs on everything. There will be earmuffs on signs, earmuffs on vehicles, um, on businesses, on their pets. Um, it's very common to see people's dogs wearing earmuffs. Um, 
behind all of the the silliness and the events um, is community pride. Um, We love the community that we come from, and to have a famous local inventor and his creation to rally around um, for one day and just have some fun is just part of who we are. That was Penny Maservier, the director of the Franklin County Chamber of Commerce in Farmington, Maine, which helps to put on the annual Chester Greenwood celebration that takes place the first Saturday of December. Melody, the thing I loved about that is just how how the whole community just uses it as a day to just be silly. <laughs> just just enjoy each other being silly with giant earmuffs on everything. Right. It is possible that that celebration is even quirkier than the factory whistle in York. (laughs) Um, And that's what is so great about it It is just this weird holiday that they invented to honor themselves. And it's funny and it's fun. And of course, you know, families can get into it, but also older people and anyone. It's totally accessible to everyone and if I live near Farmington, Maine, for sure I would go over and see all the earmuffs. You know, this is um, you know, this encapsulates hometown pride. You're just taking your town's thing and every town has a thing um, but you know, something that your town does well or you're excited about and you just blow it up and make it you know, the thing that we celebrate every year in a bigger and bigger way. <laughs> there are a couple of others that I want to share before we run out of time, Melody Warnick, and these both fit into the category of the agricultural specialty, <laughs> strawberries, onions, <laughs> garlic, raspberries, peaches, whatever a community is famous for or used to be famous for, a lot of them will do these really lovely little celebrations. They're often in the summer, which makes it so nice. But um, let's listen briefly to a little bit about Petaluma, California's thing, which is eggs, so every April, they have the Butter and Eggs Day Festival. We talked to Marie McCusker, who is the executive director of the Petaluma Downtown Association and Visitor Program. She's actually from the UK, but she came to Petaluma because she loved the agricultural feel of the town. So here she is talking about one of the highlights of Butter and Eggs Day, which is the cutest little chick contest. What's wonderful about this event now is that many of the parents that were at the cutest little chick in their day are now coming with their cutest little chicks. So it's a family tradition, and these kids are dressed up in all kinds of fluffy things inside eggs. Parents are very creative in how they can present these little kids. You know, they will have stripy tights with big chicken feet. They have headdresses on that are huge plumes. Um, some babies are in totally, you know, um, yellow feathers, and they're inside a little egg. Um, Sometimes they're in a little pull-along that looks like a nest with uh, maybe one or two cute little chicks in there. That was Marie McCusker talking about the intergenerational appeal. I love the idea of the grandma who was the cutest little chick and then her daughter and now her granddaughter. And they just really pull out the stops with these silly little costumes. So here's one other take on this from um, a woman we spoke to about an agricultural celebration that happens in her community. And Melody, I'm particularly interested in hearing your thoughts on this one because of why this woman says that, that this particular celebration is so important to her. My name is Stephanie I'm from Pleasant Grove, Utah. One of my favorite hometown traditions is our strawberry days that we have every year. It occurs in the first half of June usually. Um, We have strawberries and cream, which is our main um, dish, kind of like our theme of the whole strawberry days, the strawberries. And um, a lot of people don't realize that the strawberries have to be cut and be prepared by hundreds of people throughout the week. Um, Thousands and thousands of cups of strawberries are sold during the rodeo, during the carnival. We have many events throughout the week where they're distributed. And um, one of my favorite parts is actually preparing the strawberries. My friends and I will sometimes sign up together and we'll get together in the morning. And um, usually it's just in some buildings downtown and we get together and there's hundreds of strawberries we just cut we talk um, we meet people from our community who we haven't met before and it's just a really fun environment so melody warnick her nostalgia for strawberry days isn't about eating strawberries or the parade or the rodeo it's about serving i thought that was really interesting 
Well, first of all, let me say that um, Strawberry Days is close to my heart. My father-in-law, Stan Warnick, is from Pleasant Grove, Utah. And when my husband, Quinn, was growing up, they pegged their family vacation every day, uh, every year to come back for Strawberry Days. They had moved away and lived in lots of different cities. But they would always come back for Strawberry Days. And so for my husband, this was this lovely childhood memory of eating the strawberries and cream and going on rides and going to the rodeo. And when his family decided to move back to Pleasant Grove when he was in high school, Strawberry Days kind of paved the way. You know, he knew he was coming someplace great. Um, but I think the story that Stephanie tells of helping put on the festival is at the heart of all this. One thing that I've realized studying communities and place attachment is that behind every festival like this, every event that you love in your town is a, a whole huge group of people who make it happen. And really, almost always, there's one person who at the beginning had the idea and acted on it. You know, someone said, hey, we should have a Christmas parade or why don't we put on a, you know, a rodeo or a festival? And they actually did it. They made it happen. I'm I'm so impressed with people who invest in their community that way. So, you know, we're not all going to start the enormous festival, but uh, when you see things like this happening in your community, uh, get involved, volunteer, march in the parade, sign up to cut the strawberries. It is a a really valuable way to feel engaged and connected in your community, especially if you're a newcomer. But even if you've been there for a while, it helps you see your town in a different way and, and get involved. But I also like to tell people, if you have an idea like this for your town, don't just kind of mull it over or wish that, you know, oh, I wish we had this Christmas festival or whatever. Actually, you know, act on it, make it happen, get together with some friends and some community members and make something interesting happen in your community. You can actually have an enormous impact on where you live just by turning these good thoughts into reality. Melody Warnick is author of This Is Where I Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place Where You Live. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for joining us today, Melody. Thank you so much, Julie. It was a pleasure. We first broadcast that conversation back in 2017, but all of those celebrations are still ongoing because what good's a tradition if it doesn't endure, right? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. We wish you a very happy, healthy holiday season. And thank you for spending time with us each week, digging into topics that challenge you to think more deeply. It's a privilege to be part of your podcast listening routine. And we'd love to connect with you, so find us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>